Welcome to Hacked in the Dark, a podcast featuring Forge in the Dark games and their designers. I am Justin. And I am Mark. And we'll be your hosts for today's episode, Factional Intrigue with a Couple of Drakes. Today, we're going to sit down with Navi and Sean Drake to talk about Court of Blades. Welcome, both of you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for coming on the show. You're going to be our first design duo on the show. We've had, you know, we had Strush on a couple of weeks ago, and he is part of a design duo as well. And I, I think that's a really interesting way to work. How did the two of you find working as a team? We actually work really well together. We've been married for a long time, so uh, we pretty much complete each other's thoughts as it is. So usually one of us will come up with an idea, and as soon as we spitball it, the other one just takes it and runs with it. So we have a really great back and forth. Everything's very collaborative. We don't really have a clear division of labor. Everything's a group effort. Exactly. We like bouncing off of each other. We have since since we first met. We've been writing together for a really long time, longer than we've been married. But really what it, what it comes down to is that I have crazy off-the-wall ideas. She goes ahead and takes them and filters them down. And then she says, now, how do we do that mechanically? And then I take over. Would you say you say you don't have like any one area of focus, e- either of you, but do you have specialties? As far as specialties go, I think Navi's actually my lead world builder, and she makes sure that everything is, you know, flavorful. And my job is to is kind of take that flavor and reinforce it through mechanics and what's going to make it easiest to run as a GM. I agree with that. Makes you the nuts and bolts. That dynamic, is that reflected as well in, like, if there are certain sections that only Navi's going to touch, so to speak? I think that Navi does, uh, she's, she built our, our world building section, kind of a, a taste of Ilrian, the, uh, the setting of Court of Blades. She's the one who wrote most of that and, you know, established a lot of the, a lot of the flavor of the world, a lot of like what the people of Ilrian and the people who live there really prize and what they kind of, what they value and what sort of informs the fiction. And then she kind of gave me an idea of what kind of characters would inhabit this world and what kind of stories the game was built to tell. And then I spitballed a whole bunch of various uh, mechanics, and she's like, that's good, but maybe we could cut this. And, and, and she kept my scope very, very tight and focused. Navi, would you like to tell us about the premise of Court of Blades, since I know that's your big production right now? The whole premise of Court of Blades was to create sort of... Um, a political pressure cooker. So we, we borrowed from Duskfall, that, that intense, you're trapped in a city, everything you do matters because everybody knows who you are, right? Uh, we took that same idea and then we made it even more of a pressure cooker because we added on uh, social seasons where now everything you do is really crammed into a, a narrow space. So it was. it's intended to be a very intense political intrigue where the friends you make matter, the enemies you make matter, and you have to kind of keep all of these things in mind as you're doing your jobs. You can't just kind of disappear into the night and you know lay low for a while because you're working for this big grand house. Everyone knows who you are. You're, you know, you have to kind of play by the rules. So uh, that was really what we were shooting for as a, a political intrigue game. The high-level concept is uh, it's a game of power politics, renaissance magic, romantic skullduggery, Forge in the Dark. Yeah, I think this mix of uh, intrigue and magic and romance is quite striking. Some might say a surprise sort of entry, given the fictional distance seemingly from gangs of, you know, whatever, New Victoria or uh, Streets of Akros, you know. This seems to be maybe a divide, but I think there's actually a lot of parallels here. I'm wondering how 
Court of Blades might show us more about hitting that, that balance. You could go one direction, yes, but it's sort of like you're going to be walking a tightrope between all these different, right, intrigue, magic, and romance type, these three factors, I think, right? Well, certainly. Um, in, in Blades in the Dark, you, I mean, it's very, very heist fiction. It's very Peaky Blinders in this, you know, ghost punk Victorian city. Like our roots, we love the Renaissance, we love the Medicis, we love these powerful families maneuvering, but... You know, if we're going to play a game, we can't start at the top. So we decided that instead of scoundrels, we're playing retainers to these noble houses. We're still out on, you know, dirty jobs on occasion. We're interacting with all of these various factions. But at its core, it's still very much you are problem solvers to power. You can leverage your, your social position to uh, solve problems that maybe a scoundrel couldn't. It is a tightrope, but it's explicitly supposed to be. Otherwise, where's the fun in the game, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm curious what brought you to, to this particular genre of courtly intrigue. Is it something that you've been a fans of? We are certainly fans of courtly intrigue. Uh, it's, we've done a lot of play-by-posts in the past that kind of uh, fit neatly into this niche. I mean, others as well. We, we are interested in a broad range of genres. But what actually brought us to finishing this game first before any of our others, because we've had other games in, in the works that we kind of put in a desk and we're like, well, let's just let that simmer. But this one was actually inspired by a friend of ours, a very good friend of ours, who was talking about how she she basically wished that she could play the, um, uh, what's Wicked Eyes and Wicked Hearts, you remember what that was called? I can't remember the actual name of the quest now that I'm thinking about it, but it was in Dragon Age Origins. And she said the, the masked ball in Orlais was her very favorite part of any video game ever, and she just never wanted it to end. Uh, so I'm like, I could probably build that. And Natalie's like, we should totally build that. <laughs> That's really sweet. You mentioned play-by-post. Uh, is that where you both have your role-playing role start? or just a place where you converged? Well, it's certainly where our histories converged, but uh, mm -hmm. actually we're both, like, until until fairly recently, we've been very, very traditional role-playing games. You know, I, I cut my teeth on the basic box of D&D, &D, and, you know, that's I, I played that for probably 20 years before I even stepped outside that walled garden and, and found all these awesome story games. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. I come from a very similar background, too, and uh, kind of fallen in to discover Blades in the Dark and Powered by the Apocalypse all kind of in one flurry. And so I'm interested to see how that plays into the design. Uh, uh, I'm also wondering, picking up a Game of Thrones vibe, perhaps, from some of the descriptions? Is that is that a touchstone for what we're talking about here? I think that it is a, a touchstone that people are very familiar with in that there were a lot of powerful leaders vying for, um, you know, that position, the throne in that case, right? They all wanted the, the Iron Throne. But in ours, they're fighting to sit as the first house. So... It's, it is similar in that regard. We don't have any nationwide combat. We, we center in very keenly on the city of Ilrian, so everything that happens, happens there. But the families are very different, and the families do come from different cultures. So it does give you a little bit of that vibe if you're looking for it. But if you're looking for leading armies into a giant war to take over an entire country, that's really not the, the nature of the game. We're talking more about like principalities, like, um, you know, in... Uh, ancient Rome or Venice, like everything was kind of, well, things were still contained. Yeah, uh, Game of Thrones for me, it definitely fixates, at least from from my reading of the books and my, my viewing of the show, it's very much the powers that be are the central characters and we are playing, you know, Kingmaker. Like if we were, if we were going to cast like the retinues, the retainers of A Court of Blades, 
I think that we would probably be like Jory, the guard that uh, Ned Stark brought to King's Landing, or like Varys's little birds, or something like that. Like we would very much be the people who are in the trenches doing the work. Every now and then, we we hit upon a moment where where we get to really affect the course of the politics of this this grand sweeping narrative. But at the same time, we're also not nobles in our own right. We're hoping one day to get there. We're scrabbling up the ladder trying to prove ourselves invaluable, mm -hmm. but we're definitely not going to ever sit on that throne. Hmm, that's an important distinction. That makes this very special in that way then, I think. In Blades of the Dark, how it's very focused on like a small group that is really vying for itself. You know, this uh, suggests a much grander purpose behind each of the groups that you would have in play. How do you highlight that? So I think that the thing that really differentiates us from Blades in the Dark is in Blades in the Dark, your primary currency, the coin of the realm, is coin. You know, everybody wants a wants to flash a coin. In uh, Court of Blades, we we focus more on favor. It's more of what is your name worth? Like money is not not a not an object. The house will make sure that you get what you need to accomplish your goals. It's just what's it going to cost you socially? We had. At the very beginning, um, I pitched, you know, resources that we would have to buy and work around, but it just, it was too much, and I think, I think she, she cut to the quick of that. Yeah, it was it's something we toyed with for a bit, and uh, no matter how I tried to make sense of it, we just couldn't fit resources in there in any meaningful way. And I think it was because the resources were tied too much to the houses that are being served, and you're the retainers, that's really not your concern, and you really shouldn't have to be concerned about those particular aspects of the house. So uh, yeah, we ended up stripping out resources and uh, basically removing a lot of uh, extra paperwork that everybody would have had to have sat down and done between games and whatnot, which is really not keeping in the spirit of what makes Forged in the Dark games really great. Like nobody wants to do that much paperwork and we already have a little bit of extra upkeep with the GM's turn in ours, so we wanted to minimize that. So yeah, with uh, the social clout, right? How like it doesn't, money you're taking care of, but who knows you? What's your reputation? That really matters a lot more than flashing coin. How invaluable are you to the house? Mm -hmm. That's that's your major cachet. That's, that's what you spend to get better results. That's what you spend to uh, acquire assets that's what you spend basically to to buy your way into polite society yeah your social credit so to speak i really resonate with the orlay and the dragon age comparison there that really puts the image in my head of, of what you're going for with court of blades and and gets me pretty excited you mentioned that you have started some other games and I'm wondering if we can take a little detour before we get into our topic and have you talk about what else you've worked on in the field. We have another game that we're currently working on called Kids in the Dark. It's um, a fun kind of, you know, like the old 80s horror movies where you like uh, Freddy Krueger and uh, Stephen King's It and, and all those things where like you have children that are up against you know these forces and the adults don't believe them or they don't want to hear about it and so it's kind of one of those it's a, it's a really fun kind of horror setting it's you know great for any 80s 90s child we're trying to trim out most of the mechanics to really narrow it down to a one shot to release for this halloween while the game is still in development because it is certainly nowhere near completion but it is pretty close to being um, runnable for a hack so that's a really fun one that we have coming up at the same time, we're also doing a couple of little supplemental things, uh, mostly in, in connection with the Hack in the Dark jams, actually, that are going on right now. There's 
There's the zine jam for the one-page scores, and there's the uh, play sheet jam that's going on right now, the usual suspects, which, awesome, by the way. And currently, we're, we're trying to make a, a sports team in Duskfall that people can play that is playing the, the Duskfall pastime, the much-beloved Roofball. So <laughs> that's going to be up and ready to go here pretty soon as well. Thank you for bringing attention to those things. We haven't even introduced them ourselves, I suppose. Yeah, we're pretty excited, and I'm not going to stop talking about it, so I, I, I would apologize, but it would ring hollow. So people know, as of this recording, I'm hosting myself a jam, Unusual Suspects, for Blades in the Dark Playbooks. It's going to be a place I, I'm hoping to consolidate a whole bunch of custom playbooks, which, while there are custom playbooks for Blades already, I think a lot of them have kind of fallen into obscurity since the downfall of Google+. And so I'm really excited to see that we've already got like 10 playbooks only a couple days in, and we have like 80 participants. So that's really exciting to see. Yeah, big hype for that. Go ahead and call out your playbook name, I guess, because you'll be claiming it you're, you're at work there. My submission, if I don't do any more, I'm going to be submitting the Stitcher which I'm just putting the finishing touches on, which is kind of like an 1800s medicine person slash like charlatan, kind of inspired by the idea that back in the day, scientists and medical professionals kind of didn't know what they were doing in a lot of cases. And they kind of had to convince themselves that they were experts in a field that didn't completely actually exist. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Yeah, so that's kind of the premise. Look for it. It should be done by the time you're listening to this. And check out all of the amazing playbooks on that. Thanks for the little interlude, Drakes. I appreciate it. And of course, check out the the charity zine that we're also putting together. That should be just finishing up around the same time. You two are dabbling in design. One thing I, I've touched on a little bit, but I would love to know where you got your start together in roleplay. That has to be... 12 years ago, Four 14 score. years ago, something like that. We, we actually met on a, uh, on a play-by-post roleplay uh, just ages ago. Um, but we actually started, started playing tabletop games together about eight years ago, I think. That sounds right. So I, I had a weekly D&D game since the dawn of time, and she came over... And we, we moved in together and everything. And uh, I was telling her, you know, hey, I got a got a D and D game that I go to all the time. And uh, she's like, awesome. I played three point five. So, <laughs> and so we never never stopped playing together since. Play by post is, uh, you know, a lot of people actually get their start in play by post role play because they don't have a group or whatever. I know that's not your experience necessarily, but I have a feeling that it's it's a very different culture of role play than many of us are used to or many of us have experienced. Do you feel that that culture of play-by-post roleplay has influenced your design in any way? I, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and say yes, because the the nature of play-by-post is that they kind of have these little moth lives. They're very short-lived. They're usually great for a couple of months and then everybody wanders off. It's not one of those things like a, a tabletop game where usually we come together once a week and we'll play the same game for a year and we keep the same group forever. With play-by-posts, there really is a, a very short life. So uh, you're constantly trying to make the next play-by-post scenario, the next game that's going to get really good writers to come and join you in this. And so that's 
probably where I get my world building chops is uh, in those scenarios where every couple of months it's like, okay, I have to come up with this whole new setting, this story drive to bring people in and get them excited about coming to play this thing. So yeah, I think that that definitely flavors how I approach game building. Yeah, I agree. I think that coming from that ecosystem, even when I was a participant, when I wasn't wasn't running a play by post, I always felt the need to make sure that every scene had weight. Every everything was kinetic, and everything had something for somebody else to latch onto, so that I would get another post. You know, so somebody didn't walk away and uh, and say, "Well, this is boring. Let's go find something else to do." The engine behind Court of Blades and and really everything we do is um, you know basically trying to build a satisfying narrative that hook by hook and scene by scene kind of drives its own complexity forward, drives drives the, the scenario to continue being story-shaped, to, uh, to continue giving, giving avenues that everybody can, can interact with this, this greater world that's, that's happening and you know, basically hold your attention, right? <laughs> yeah, I'd say that Blades makes a solid foundation as a game considering the way the factions are quite important and you track these relationships to drive you know, new scores in Blades. I mean, here, I guess it would be like either missions, social missions, or maybe something else equivalent. Can you talk about how that is expanded or changed in uh, Court of Blades? Yeah, I think I think that the, uh, the biggest departure is that in Blades in the Dark, faction maneuverings, the actual actual factions you interact with, they have they have a clock, they have a, a vague agenda that that gets ticked when the uh, when the GM sees a a narrative beat that serves that clock. But it feels, at least from from the way that I've run it, the way that I've seen it run, it feels very much like an optional sort of mechanic. And and the idea for uh, Court of Blades was to make that almost like a, a mechanized uh, necessity rather than, than something that you can take kind of at your leisure. We have dice, we have the, the faction turn that kind of moves those clocks and, uh, and, you know, creates this really interesting emergent narrative where we have the rise and falls of factions. We have, hopefully, the, the rise of the player faction in the midst of all of that, although sometimes you lose it all. You mentioned the player faction. Is that kind of the driver of your narrative? Yeah, the house itself that you serve, uh, the coterie is is serving one of six great houses uh, in the city, and based on the actions of the players, the coterie, the house either suffers or uh, gains, based almost entirely upon upon the actions of the player characters. Whereas the other houses, you know, I secretly refer to as the AI houses, they are using what we call the faction stats, right? So we have, uh, we have faction ratings in three different stats that determine how many dice they roll every time they try and pursue a goal at the end of every social season. Uh, based on the nature of that dice roll, they might succeed, they might fail, they might make you know, gains and progress. We might tick those clocks, but there's always something new. And they're constantly juggling these various priorities. And it sounds a lot more complicated when I speak to it, but really it comes down to at the end of every social season, the GM rolls four dice, and that drives narrative. It sounds to me like the factions in your game are, are almost a character. Like they have a lot more texture and nuance, which is appropriate for a game all about them. <laughs> so that was certainly something we were striving for. Um, it, it was a goal. When we outlined what it would 
take? You know, when we had the initial idea, so what would it take to make this game? One of the things at the top of the list was how do we make sure that all of the factions feel real, that the world is constantly moving? And, and we had to mechanize that so that it's not falling completely on the shoulders of the GM to come up with all of these twists and turns. So the, the way we set it up is that, you know, you roll a few dice and there's some charts there to help you. And at the end of every social season, you now have a completely different political scape to inform your players of, um, for the players to interact with, and it's really very little work for the GM to make those things happen. Ah, so they get the starting template and then they can kind of expand that and play, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. That's That was something that I, as you know, the forever GM, uh, it was really important to me that the twists and turns, that the, uh, the kind of narrative that we want to put forward, they came organically. They, they, you know, could come out of an unexpected quarter, but they also didn't require you to, you know, make a flow chart or one of those, you know, red yarn diagrams <laughs> of all the various maneuverings and movings and shakings. Because that's look, I've got a, I've got a life to live. I love game day, but the thing that I love about Blades in the Dark is that I can sit down with a really simple, like, 15-minute on my drive home sort of scenario and say, okay, guys what are we doing tonight? And then the narrative will emerge organically from, you know, the ideas of the players and the idea and the random nature of the dice. And it ends up being a satisfying narrative without breaking my brain. And that's what I wanted to bring to this game too. Thank you for not breaking our brains. <laughs> GMs everywhere do thank you for that. We have enough on our plate, so to speak. And it's great to see these wonderful GM tools emerging from the Forge in the Dark space and uh, other games being hacked in this area. I'm interested to know, how does the twists and turns, is there like a series tracker, right? Is there one of those things uh, that you have in Blades where you're tracking the various things that happen each session? So we have like a, almost like a storybook after we've played a few sessions? Well, certainly when Navi is taking my, my campaign notes, when she's, uh, she's chronicling for our Saturday night group or our Tuesday night group, we definitely have a a narrative that gets posted up in the in the crew discord but no what really the gm turn is kind of all about is that we roll those four dice for each of the each of the families each of the major factions and that creates a creates a scenario creates a goal it needs a little bit of fleshing out it might be you know four evocative words right so it might be a a subterfuge action involving force that is both magical and covert right so it might be, you know, well, we're trying to hire a mercenary group of mages as House Battalia this particular season, but they're proving intractable, right? So this is their, their goal for the social season. But, you know, next season they might have made inroads in that, but the world keeps coming. So we have to roll them a new goal and, uh, and, and things rapidly become spinning plates. And as they complete these, these goals, they find themselves in a better position in the city. Like they are acquiring power and allies and assets and they're working at cross purposes with all of the other houses. And I think it's important to, to mention here that these these things that the other houses are trying to achieve, they're not just um, ideas on a paper that the GM has to deal with and maybe throw a few out. It's actually something that the players can uh, reach out and interact with because we have mechanics built into the game to uncover a plot. You uncover one of these plots that the GM has rolled up between the social seasons and you can actively go out and try to essentially kneecap your competition. So, mm. you know, you find out what 
they're doing and you might make that your errand for the day is we're gonna do nothing today except for go and try to stop Corvetto from accomplishing what they're trying to accomplish so that they can't succeed as well as we do this season. Yeah, political political maneuvering, right? So when we say power politics, we mean kneecapping the opposition. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like chess, right? So you, yeah. you might not wanna go after the house that's directly above you because you know in time you're gonna overtake them. You might wanna set your sights a little bit higher and really start targeting houses that are more advanced than you and bringing them down so they're easier to overtake later because the last thing you want is for the houses to run away and all end up very powerful because then you have a much harder game at the end. Does your game have an end state? Like, is there a point at which you have made it to the top? There is a, there is a, a canon end state, I guess, where you're, the house that you serve, your, uh, the house here being your, your crew book, right? So the house that you serve, it ascends to the first house of the Esseltare. They are crowned prince of the city. You become family members in your own right. And at that point, the game could be over. But at the same time, heavy is the crown, and there are other houses that are still gunning for you. That being the, that being the case, now you've got a vested interest because you're now a titled member of this, this family. Do you really want to see it all topple the moment that you give up your skullduggery for, for a cushion? <laughs> Awesome. Is the faction sheet as large as it is in Blades, or is it just a few like really important factions? And which is your favorite? So our, our faction sheet is quite large. Uh, there's only six houses of the Esoltare, so you have five competitors in, in that arena in that race to the top. But there are a number of other factions working within the city. We have the Houses Minor. You have things like the Baker's Guild and other other important things that, you know, the churches and whatnot that all keep everything running. And then we have the Uncouth, which are sort of your outsiders and whatnot. And th there's a lot of interesting factions. Um, so we probably have more more factions. And I dare say we'll probably add even more factions over time. I think we have 33 right now. Yeah. We have problem. Right. Wow. So we do have the Houses Minor, which are all the, the civic functions and the Bank of Brass and Bone mm -hmm. and anything that makes the world go around is a House Minor. We have the Uncouth, which are mercenaries and gangs. So people who are you know still very much in the Duskfall mindset will see that Ilrien, the greatest city in the world, still has a seamy underbelly. But then we've also got the Outsiders because we need just a little bit of weirdness involved to get that, that Renaissance magic going. And as far as my favorite faction. Yeah, from both of you, I would love to hear. I know mine. You know yours, go, go please. <laughs> okay. uh, my favorite faction is um, certainly the Dead Watchers. So we, we created a faction and it's another one of those things where um, if players want to bite off on it, there's plenty of story there, but if they're not interested at all, then they just throw it out and it's unnecessary. But um, the Dead Watchers essentially are the gravekeepers. They, they live on the Necropolitan Hill and they keep the riffraff out and they make sure that nobody's you know doing anything unseemly there. But most importantly, we have... Uh, a deathless, a very ancient, very powerful mage that is buried alive essentially underneath the Necropolitan Hill. And you know, you don't have to interface with it, but I can tell you that if you let it out, or if somebody else lets it out, all hell would probably <laughs> break loose. It is alluded to in a few places throughout the book if that is something that's interesting or interesting to people. So I really do love the the Death Watchers just kind of hanging out in the graveyard and making sure that uh, you know a big evil doesn't come to eat this city of politic. 
there, there's of course a, a notable faction clock uh, for the Sevenfold Veils, the esoteric cult, cultist faction, where they're trying to wake the last Deathless. But um, my Ooh. favorite, my favorite faction is probably Soraya, the the outsider, the beggar queen who lives underneath. I think it's the Gilt Bridge, mm-hmm. and sh- she and her army of cats, uh, who she refers to as the <laughs> Royal Guard. I think I think she might be my favorite. Wow. I think I think she's mine too. I only, know, I only know the two. Mark, do you have a favorite faction in Blades in the Dark? Uh, I was always drawn to the spookier ones, like the Dimmer Sisters. Yeah, the, just like the weird factions, like any of just pick any of those on the on the right the right bottom right side of the faction list. I am I'm kind of with you. I think mine is actually the Lamp Blacks because to me they're almost like. They could be the player characters if you were, you know, beholden to some kind of older magics and stuff, which is which is kind of a cool thought. That's kind of why they're my favorite. But I like factions in general because they give you such good fiction in a tight package. In many ways, you only even need their name to really kind of go wild with with what they can do. And I, I so the idea of a whole bunch of factions in your game. Is, is really exciting to me. It's a, it seems like a good way to jumpstart the fiction. Yeah, 30's not that bad. I mean, 33, you know, <laughs> uh, but what, you got four categories, maybe eight, you know, for each one. Not too bad. You could probably do 12. That wouldn't be too bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way I looked at it, I guess, when I was designing factions for my game, too. I was like, oh, you know, more of these couldn't hurt. <laughs> Never have too many. That's right. Yeah, and and we've got got so many of them that we uh, that we had, and we we had kind of half ideas for, and maybe maybe there will be a supplement that's just factions of Ilrian, and it's just you know 180 pages of, of factions and <laughs> things like that. The Death Watchers saga, I would totally read that. That's my vote anyway. <laughs> so in Blades in the Bark, Blades in the Bark, I think, is actually a thing. that exists. Dogs in the Bark. Dogs right? in the Bark. Dogs, Dogs in, in the, the bark. bark, you're right. Yeah, people should look up that if they can find it. It's really cool. Um, but in Blades in the Dark, <laughs> the the factions are all, in, in many ways, mechanically, they're very simple. They have a tier, which is compared to the crew's tier, and they have hold, which is kind of just like a representation of of what kind of property and in land they have in Duskfall. And other than that, they have they have projects and, and a list of folks who are in charge of them, etc. It sounds like in, in your game it's a little more fleshed out. But what I'm really interested in is how do we measure, you know, success in terms of like measuring ourselves against other factions in Crown of Blades? Because in Blades in the Dark, it's very much just who is higher than us and who is lower than us. That's kind of the main way in which we judge our progress. Yeah, no, it is interesting in Court of Blades, especially when you're when you're starting off and you're that little, you know, minimal tier, you have no, no levels essentially under your belt, and you realize that you still have to interface with very powerful factions, and your working for a powerful house will only get you so far, because these people still don't know you, they still don't respect you, even if they have to respect the, the uh, Esoteri by, by law, so that, that is an interesting thing that, that we play with there. So I think that the biggest biggest differentiation, the maneuverings, like the, the big, large-scale maneuverings of the Esseltare are dictated by, by the GM turn, by the faction turn, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, gleefully stolen uh, name from Stars Without Number. 
the minor factions are handled much in the same way. The Houses Minor, the, uh, the, the Uncouth, and the Outsiders are handled very similarly to Blades in the Dark, just for ease of use and for, uh, for ease of you know, good grist for the, for the story mill. They still have clocks, they still have aspirations, they still have notable territories and NPCs and things like that. They're supposed to be familiar enough to pick up and, and turn into story. The Esoltari, however, are the ones who are constantly moving and shifting, and you'll never know exactly where they're going next unless you spend those downtime actions to uncover plots. And speaking about the uh, progression as well, I noticed that back in June, you posted an update talking about slower progression and how the social seasons were being introduced as well. Could you talk about uh, how each of those might be affecting gameplay together? Yeah, it was really important for us in this game to slow down the progression. Uh, in a lot of Forge in the Dark games, there are quick burns. You you finish in you know maybe ten um, sessions. Otherwise, you have characters that have a uh, you know really bloated skills and abilities and action dots to throw around. So you know suddenly they're throwing four dice at everything, and uh, we wanted to kind of. Scale that back and, and make sure that it takes a little bit longer for you to reach those levels of power so that the, the game can stretch to the necessary length to really fulfill its purpose, which is really deep political maneuvering. You want to be able to forge multiple alliances, lots of rivals, really interact with um, NPCs and kind of develop your character and build a world. And in order to do that, I think that we were shooting for a much longer campaign, really more like 20 20, 30 sessions as opposed to, um, you know, a dozen. So it was really important to to scale back how quickly you could get very powerful. Otherwise, you know, everybody would be maxed out on everything halfway through the game. And I think the social seasons, that was a way that we could we could use to, um, to kind of bring the changes that would happen in a, a longer term game uh, kind of to the forefront. This is kind of your idea here now, so uh, if you wanted to talk a little bit about the, the social seasons and how that, uh, that all kind of plays together, I think you got a better handle on it than I do. So the social seasons were created to add an additional pressure cooker element to the game. Everything's really constrained because now um, you have five different tasks that you really need to accomplish, but the social season only allows you to complete three of those tasks. Now you're really forced to prioritize which of those really must get done, and the ones that fall to the wayside can create a lot of, of very real problems for your characters, because you might miff an ally, or you might make a, a position, your position with a rival even worse. Um, so social seasons were, um, kind of the opposite of slowing down progression, actually. So uh, we slow down progression as far as how much XP you can gain and, and whatnot, but the, the social seasons were really more about making certain that you cannot accomplish everything that you want to accomplish. That's going to create a lot of tension politically and socially because you have all of those obligations. They don't disappear just because you don't have time. And that's where that GM turn kind of comes in. It's uh, at least from from the GM standpoint, because it was the part of the the social season that I kind of kind of came up with. The roles at the end of every season they inform the fiction and they show what your rivals are doing, kind of behind the scenes. Like the the city will change between each season, and that's that's what the the social season is there for. It it drives more fiction. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I love that. That sounds great. I think that that will. You know, allow people to really stew in the, you know, the greatness of such a big faction drama going on. I have one, I think, last question for you on on the topic of factions and what have you. 
if someone wanted to, let's say, uh, a listener of the show who's a fan of Blades in the Dark, and their dream is to run a version of your game in the Blades in the Dark setting, would that be an easy enough thing to do? Yeah, I think that Court of Blades could could work in Duskfall. I don't know necessarily that uh, that it would be a one for one translation of all the various mechanics that uh, that would fit neatly into Duskfall. But I think that a game of Court of Blades, like a really satisfying game in a lot of ways, could be run maybe even like among the the underworld factions, like almost like a, a Gangs of New York thing. Uh, that'd be really really interesting to see because the the wheelings and dealings in Ilrian are. Uh, predicated upon favor, like coin is not a not a problem for for our retainers, but for scoundrels, coin is king, right? So you might have to go back to might have to go back to an economy of coin, but uh, otherwise, I think all of the tools that we include in uh, in Court of Blades could very easily make the transition uh, into the Shattered Isles could uh, could could be used in Duskfall to show the various wheelings and dealings, the maneuverings that all of these rival gangs and factions have. Um, you could even just whole cloth take kind of the social season and you know, set agendas for all of the various other factions, at least the ones that the players are interested in dealing with. And that's a way to drive further emergent fiction in a Blades in the Dark game by running it kind of like Court of Blades. I don't think that Duskfall has a very fleshed out like nobility, but it'd be super interesting to see all of the scheming that's happening at the top while all of the, uh, the hard scrabble scoundrels are down in the gutter uh, trying to amass their fortune. So I think even if you wanted to port it whole cloth over, it would just need some more I mean, all the world building in Forge in the Dark uh, games is typically kept pretty evocative and vague, but that kind of soft world building would need a little bit more fleshing out just to make make the game of houses work. But I, I really want to play that game where you're, you know, wondering what the lamp blacks are up to this particular season. Like, you know, you can you can go and you can uncover what it is that Bazo Baz and his uh, his folks are are doing this season. That's really cool for me. Some guidance for people to transfer the factions of Blades in the Dark to your game could be really cool. I'm sure there are a lot of people who would love to play a more political game of Blades in the Dark. Not that people don't already, but uh, a game that's a little bit more in the style of that courtly intrigue drama that your game seems like it provides. I think that we've got a couple of um, we've got a couple of underworld factions. We've got the the uncouth uh, side of our, our faction sheet, and we tried to we tried to bring a variety of kind of underworlds and unsavories and people who are out of fashion and things like that. If we wanted to make a a more robust kind of criminal underworld in Ilrian, like that would be that'd be really cool. And I mean, bringing the outsiders from Duskfall uh, whole cloth over into into Ilrian would actually be really interesting. Uh, we have a, a conspiracy kind of like the Circle of Flames, but what if there was a competing conspiracy to the Sevenfold Veils, the, the Circle of Flames? That would be, draw out a lot more delicious and interesting tension. Before we go into our, before we wind down, I do have one question I'm curious about, just because it's something I would look for in a game of factional intrigue personally, which is, is there romance? Are there mechanics for romance? Court of Blades is a it's a romantic setting. It invites romance. Uh, we encourage romance with the the language of the game, and um, you'll find a lot of scenarios where romance is sort of um, a pivotal part uh, point in the errand itself. So you'll need to help someone with a romantic endeavor or stop a romantic endeavor that's not in you know the house does not favor that particular arrangement. It's in the air, right? But we didn't mechanize it, not in the way that uh, we've seen other games mechanize it, Monster Hearts and things like that. And I think that it was just 
a, a choice to to make it something that is a a player's choice. What is comfortable at the table? Is that something that the table is actually interested in? And I'm not personally a fan of foisting, you know, um, romance upon people, like you must have romance. Uh, so it is, it is a part of the setting. You don't have to personally interact with it. You can still go and stop the prince's courtier from running away with the buskin. You can still go and interact with that romance without yourself having to engage in personal romance. But by all means, your downtime actions are yours, what you do with NPCs. And uh, I, I love romance. I, I always find a way in our games to, to kind of latch on to a character. Um, and I encourage that. I think it's a lot of fun and it develops your character, which is really important in Court of Blades. This is a character story game. Uh, we give you lots of time to develop your character and build relationships and tell the interesting story that you really want to tell. So by all means, engage in romance, but no, we have not recognized it. That's enough for me. That's, that's what I, that, I think I can get what I want out of that. Well, thank you, Navi and Sean, for joining us today and for all your insights into Court of Blades and factions and factional drama. We really appreciate it. If our listeners want to learn more about you or your games, where can they go? Well, you can find us at, uh, well, you can find Court of Blades at courtofblades.com. We both run Twitters. I'm at Drake and Dice, if you want to uh, hear my, my grognard musings and, and connect with that. Uh, Navi has Navi Musing, at Navi Musing. She has a lot of good stuff on there as well. Uh, it, it, mostly you can come for the banter and stay for the games talk. But then we also have our itch.io. We're a couple of drakes on uh, itch.io. We uh, are going to be putting up some more Blades in the Dark content and some, some more bite-sized stuff up on our itch. Before I let you go, you're also part of an actual play currently. Do you want to shout out your characters? Yeah, so we are in David's Virgins, which is a game of these kind of interstellar travelers. They're they're human, but they're very very powerful, right? So there, there are these bloodlines that allow them to walk between dimensions. So despite the fact that they are super powerful, they still have very human problems, familial problems. And in that regard, it's just, it's really a lot of fun because it's almost like um, what happens when superheroes have family issues. So so we, we play this, this group that is coming together for a masked ball to um, help each other with a host of interesting problems that we've gathered um, to they can all be resolved in one place. And I'm playing Anagi. She is a shaman from the serpent. It is uh, quite literally a massive serpent that just kind of uh, swims through space and has grown an entire civilization rather on its on its back. Um, that really spoke to me. I, I think that he does some really wonderful world building. And um, I was I was on board the moment that I read that. I was like, yes, that's that's totally me. What about you? I'm uh, playing Valry in that particular game, David's Virgins, is um, super cool. I'm playing an adept of the power from the caverns of Agaros, and uh, it's really fun being a member of this masked ball and brushing shoulders with these really powerful characters. You know, a powerful character in my own right, but it's a super fun game, and I hope that everybody, you know, watches the, the live stream of it, because I think it is a really fun one that we're going to see great things from. Beautiful. Thank you for joining us today. This has been a great episode of Hacked in the Dark, a podcast featuring Forge in the Dark games and their designers. Once again, I'm Justin. And I'm Mark. As we go out, Mark, are you doing anything for the Unusual Suspects Jam? 
Yeah, I wanted to do something uh, sort of along the lines of a child playbook, but I think it's going to be a different focus. I think it's going to be ageless, and maybe that's the name of the book, The Ageless. So I'm kind of let that stew a little bit and just basically maybe a mix of like being between states, right? Like someone who's not yet a ghost but has done something to kind of halfway cross over or something. Well, people can check that out whenever they listen to this. Check it out on itch.io, Unusual Suspects Jam. I'm actually really excited again about all of the playbooks people are creating. And it's looking like people are going to be able to create whole games just with these playbooks. I'm noticing themes of nautical playbooks. I'm sure people will be able to put together like a nautical adventure after this of just of the playbooks that have been created. Thank you all for joining us for Hacks in the Dark. And remember, when it comes to design, we all begin our journey as Hacks in the Dark. Thank you.